Hey guys, it's Walter, and welcome to episode four of the Skullcast. Today with me, I have Azil. Hi. And Griff. Yo. We have something a little different planned this time. Generally, we start off talking with Berserk News, and then we usually launch into a reread. But this time, our entire podcast is basically a reread, because we're approaching one character, and that is the Skull Knight. So... I have my giant stack of Berserk volumes that I've been going through the past week, kind of making notations. I posted a picture of it on the last podcast thread about, you know, all the stuff I've been doing this week, looking through each appearance and noting things I might have to say. The Skull Knight is what got me really, really into Berserk. When I, I finally got into Volume 10, that's what solidified my interest in Berserk. So he's a very special character to me. Obviously, I named the freaking side after him, so it's 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 different than like Griffith or Guts to me. It's a different kind of a thing. I'm not sure if you guys have the same kind of relationship. Well, I mean, I've had a Skull Knight avatar for like as long as I can remember. So yeah, I guess he's a special character to me as well. You know, when I, I first saw the animated TV series, mm-hmm. and when I read the manga afterwards, of course, his appearance was very unexpected. And very cool. But then what really struck me is when he basically saved the day uh, during the eclipse. It was mm. really, really, I really didn't expect it. And it was extremely awesome to me. And that's that's when I guess I fell in love with the character. And uh, yeah. yeah, he's been, I wouldn't say, I'm not sure I can say he's my favorite character because I love Guts and suggesting, but yeah, he, I really, really like him. And uh, yeah. Sure. I mean, Guts obviously, uh, over time, he's become my favorite character as well. But the thing, put it in this perspective, if an episode ends and you have a silhouette of the Skull Knight, we're yeah, all, the best we're all pretty freaking, ever. exactly. It's the, <laughs> it's the greatest thing of all time at that point, you know? Yeah. So. yeah. Well, <laughs> and there's also the fact the site itself is called, you know, Skull Knight.net. So right, so. right. So we're all kind of biased in yeah. some sense. I'm Go probably ahead. the least biased, actually, for him, I guess, then. Uh, yeah, I guess I just sort of look at him more, I don't know, to me, in his, like, proper, you know, place, objectively, sort of, like, what he does for the story. Like, you know, I, I do see him as more of a support character. I mean, he obviously is a support character, but I don't, you know, he doesn't have that kind of special significance <laughs> for me. Other than he's obviously, yeah, when you see that silhouette at the end of an episode, mm-hmm. there's, you know, nothing better. Yeah, I, I burped in your general direction when you called him a support character, by the way. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> um, yeah, the character design is one that really sticks out to me as being just freaking fantastic. Miura does very unique character designs often, but the Skull Knight, it looks like it's like he went an extra three miles to make the Skull Knight look very unique and special. It, it, it kind of The way he's introduced is fascinating as well. You know, sort of in the, the, the last part of the Golden Age arc where the world's been fairly predictable in, his, in its design. And suddenly this, this, this character comes out, looks like literally from like a storybook, some kind of fantasy novel. You don't expect it necessarily. I know there's been built up with the Black Swordsman arc, but you've been in the Golden Age for a while. And that's how Guts kind of sees it as well. Is this, yeah. what the hell was that, you know? He's scared, actually. He's scared. He's afraid. Yeah, yeah. That's right. pre- that's, yeah. So it's a very, very special scene. He's reminded of Zod, you know, just the aura of yeah, uh, the presence. Yeah, the supernatural aura. Yeah, it's very impressive. The scene itself is very cool, and even the way you know this episode starts with a dark forest. Right. There's a moon. There's you know an owl. It's yeah. It's it's very very. It's a kind of atmosphere we can find again uh, during the ball. You know, in Ritanis, when uh, the tigers attack, 
you know, it oh, turns yeah. the place into darkness. Right. Or yeah. in the village, very recently, with a transformed uh, fisherman and such a thing. Mm, yeah, yeah. That kind of horror feel. What do you think? Why this character design? Why the spikes? Why the outwardly pointy design? It's a motif that's throughout his entire character. It even sort of carries over into his horse. Uh, wow. So, go ahead. Plus the thorns. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Definitely the thorns. Yeah. Do you think it all stems from that the thorn? The thorn imagery. Well, I think yeah, in part, and there's also the whole skull and skeleton aspect. Mm-hmm. But I was about to say, in general, what's very unique about this character is that he looks like a villain. You know? Yeah. He looks. He look, He looks evil, but yeah. he's not. He's not. So that's to me what's very unique about him. Mm. His whole appearance, his demeanor, everything. He's all, all makes. He's made out to be a villain, but he's not. So right. yeah, that's what. That's an interesting point about him because it's like when I see him now, I don't even re- you know like yeah, he would look like a villain anywhere else. But when I see him, you know, I you know, he looks very noble to me at this point, just because I've been completely indoctrinated, you know, with uh, all of his appearances, you know. So he look yeah, he really you know looks like this noble knight when I see him. You know, I sort of now I emphasize sort of like the white armor kind of idea. Even though he's more that greenish hue, I do remember when I first saw the character design. I didn't know what to think of him, and I did think think he what might be a villain. But obviously, you know, over the years, all of his appearances and things. Yeah, I'm I'm in a position where I can't look at him and think negative thoughts. Really, yeah. yeah. But it it might be good to remember that uh, back in the day, quite a few people thought he might actually be evil. Sure. And like he was a fifth member of the Gold Hand who rebelled against them and such a thing. There were a lot of theories about that back in the sure. day. That was sure. my first uh, big post was about you know is Skull Knight evil? <laughs> you know, <and> sort of <laughs> looking at like a big conspiracy <laughs> theory. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean we've all had our dark places. I mean I, I wrote an entire fanfic series about Geyseric and him ultimately <laughs> becoming the fifth God Hand of the previous God Hand. So yeah, yeah, we've all, uh, not all, I, I doubt a zeal, but I, I think I've, a lot of us have entertained that notion before. But the, uh, why, the, why the spikes? Why the rose thorn? Why, why all these very unique motifs throughout his entire character design? They all well, seem to tell a little bit of a story to me, like the little image of the woman on the front of a horse, the rose on the handle of the sword, the rose thorns on the, the handle of the sword. It's, it's all unique little images that kind of tell something about him that we don't even know the full picture of yet. Well, aren't we going to, like, when we get to Elfham, aren't we going to be introduced basically to a character whose name translates to, like, the King of the Flower Storm, you know? There's going to be a connection there with the, well, you know, sort of his, you know, a new mantle for him. It's, Go it's ahead, true. Sir. However, the name was uh, King of the Flower Storm, I, I mean, yeah, it could be any flower, but the way it's said, it kind of hints at uh, more like cherry blossoms, you know? Oh. A very Japanese way. But actually... It's the word hana means flower, so it could be, yeah, it could be. It's, the, the, it's possible. The hana fubuku, the, the, the flower storm you're referring to, is something very common in Japan. I think it's in summertime when the cherry blossoms bloom, wind blows, and it creates an image of a swirling mass. And that's the, the flower storm it's referring to. That's my understanding mm. of it. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it could be. In any case, it's not impossible. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe the reason, like, he would be the Rose is because, you know, he's, like, he could be the, <laughs> I don't know, the champion of uh, that cause. I mean, this is just something to throw out there, why sure. he would have a Rose insignia, since, you know, 
if we're going to tie him in with the, you know, Gazerick, obviously, you know, he didn't have that kind of imagery before, uh, just the skull. Right. Well, one thing I'll say is that to me, the rose itself, uh, I guess it evokes a very noble knight, you know, mm. something yeah. romantic. To me, it makes him feel romantic. And I, yeah. would, also, I would also tie it to Flora, which, uh, I mean, her names means, you yeah. know, flower. It's a reference to flowers as well. So wow, I, think it's, I never thought about that. Yeah, well, I guess I'm that smart. Anyway, it is, it's all tied <laughs> together to me. Even mm. if it's not tied, uh, I mean, seriously, very deeply, but yeah, there's a, a kind of reference going through which is common to all these elements. Right. To, to jump directly from the rose to the thorns on that sword handle, um, what's that about? I, I have a couple ideas, but I wanted to hear what you guys thought at first as well. This is very strange. It happens in volume 14, and when you first really notice it, Skull Knight tosses Guts' sword so he can defend against the ghosts, and Guts looks at his hand and he says, what's with this sword? And he has, you know, his hand's bleeding from holding it because there's thorns on it. So what what do you think that's about? That's a little strange. I think, well, first, I don't think it, like, really affects him, you know, that much. I mean, uh-huh, it's sure. like his hands, you know. But also, I mean, there could be, if you want to look at, like, a thematic, you know, element there, just, like, it to me, it sort of notes a kind of, like, maybe a penance you have to pay. I mean, there's, you know... Yeah. Yeah, like to his whole existence, you know, why he fights, and that sort of sim- and that could symbolize that. Yep, that's also yeah, that's what I, I was going to say as well. Well, there's one thing I should point out is that during his first appearance in Volume Nine, uh, the sword actually doesn't have the the thorns on its handle. Mura added it later on, so I think it's something he added to give death to character. Hmm. I see two aspects to it. Uh, there's, of course, the penance aspect you mentioned. Like, every time he takes his sword, there's, you know, some pain associated to it. And there's also another thing which could be he once wore the Berserk's armor. Mm-hmm. So it might have been that, much like Guts, he used the pain to give himself back some kind of feeling, you know, some senses. Since from what he told Guts, he seems to hint at the fact he lost his senses, you know, along the way. Mm. Yeah, but that's very speculative. I mean, it's just an idea I'm throwing out. Well, then, uh, well, how we had planned to go through this was to go through each volume and each appearance beyond the character design itself. Um, we've already talked quite a bit about Volume Nine and Gus's reaction to the character at Volume Nine, but mm. go ahead. I was no, I was going to say we could also talk about the horse. You know, I always think. Uh, it's it's very interesting that the, his horse itself is uh, themed the same way he himself is, mm-hmm. and the horse is supernatural, just like the skull knight is. Mm. The horse can fly, can jump over mountains, it's just shit. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it's very interesting. To me, it also hints at the fact the horse underwent the same transformation the skull knight himself, you know, did. So yeah, I don't know. I've had, I've done some thinking about the horse as well. One of the things I noticed as I was going through all of his appearances was noticing how the horse moves, how Skull Knight himself moves when he's on the horse. He doesn't necessarily fly. In Volume 9, you can see him floating a little bit off of the ground, which is the most direct allusion to flight that they have in the, in the series that I know of. Most of the time, he's either falling slowly or jumping very far in the yeah, horse, you know? true. And he also kind of defies gravity sometimes. He'll do that upside-down strike. Yeah, Which to me implies that he's doing like a flip kind of maneuver thing, but um, yeah, but yeah, the, the horse kind of jumps and takes really long leaps. 
It also defies gravity in volume 20 or 19, I think it is, 20, when he rides down the Tower of uh, an Albion, the uh, well, Tower of Conviction, I think it is. And I think in that same volume, the horse also displays like super speed, too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. When it's escaping the rising yeah. uh, swell. Yeah. So, yeah, there's definitely some weird things. And here's what I thought about the horse uh, after looking through it this week is I think necessarily – I don't – I kind of like your idea, Zeal, that the horse also went understand, underwent the same transformation. I also think it's possible yeah. that he, he underwent a search – he found this horse. The, the horse itself was an astral creature. Like maybe, you know, the most badass horse in the entire astral realm or something like that. It's <laughs> per- perfectly adapted to Skull Knight's quest, you know? Well, I certainly – more of a badass horse than Griffiths. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it could be. I, I think the horse. I, I like to think the horse underwent the same transformation as Skull Knight did, like mm. they died in battle together or something. But yeah, at this point, it's impossible to know oh, sure, exactly yeah. how it happened. And I'm not sure it will even be explained. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It could just be literally a horse that's armored, and yeah, it has some magical flight abilities too. So yes, yeah. what of it, Miura will say. You know? yeah, actually, Miura once said that the Skull Knight is a character who just flies from time to time. Like, yeah, he just flies for no reason. <laughs> he, he says that, yeah. So. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> One of the, you know, the, the reason Skull Knight approaches uh, Guts in the Forest is to tell him about the Eclipse and to basically give him a warning that you know, the Eclipse is coming, be prepared for it. And yep. he also gives a... a, a one specific illusion that uh, one who fights with a broken sword, I think it is, uh, may be able to survive. Yeah. That's a very specific image that he conjured there. And what do you think that's about? How do you think he's able to do that? How is he able to look into the future like that? Do you think he has access to some kind of oracle? Or is it the nature of whoever, the kind of existence that he has, that he's just tapped into that kind of... Uh, imagery. Well, he also knows that guts. Uh, yeah, came you know, the before. nature of his birth. Yeah. yeah, very specific imagery. That it's not. It's not a general prophecy. Like, yeah, this is Falcon of Light that's going to save people. It's something general. It's very specific character history. How do you think that's possible? What's your uh, What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's two aspects to it. The first one is that the Skull Knight is a character who's lived for a very, very long time mm-hmm. and who's aware of many events from the past. Mm-hmm. So he, he has watched, I think, uh, he's watched Guts during his youth, you know, and uh, he, he's aware of Guts' existence for a while, even before he confronted him. And the other aspect is probably that he has some kind of access. I don't know if it's uh, an oracle or maybe he can feel what's happening within causality and what's going to, you know, happen. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, he's got some kind of supernatural ability to know things. Like, in the same way, uh, in volume 34, when he attacked Femto, mm-hmm. he was there right at the right moment. Yeah, in the right something. location and everything. Yeah, in yeah, the so, exact right spot. Right. So, yeah, he's got a supernatural ability which allows him to know things he shouldn't know otherwise. The reason I say Oracle uh, specifically is because of Sonya. And in volume 32, I think it is, she tells Zod that he's going to have to make a choice. And she's just able to pull that out of the air based on her own special ability. And I wonder if there's someone else in the world that has that kind of power, maybe an elf helm, maybe, that has a similar ability to, to view into the, look into the future, possibly even look into the past, to pull those things out. So I think that's why I said an Oracle specifically. That's, just, that's my theory, that he has someone 
there's someone that he knows that's close to him that has that kind of ability. But yeah, I, I mean, that's interesting. But I like to think of him as more of a loner, actually. Like you know, sure. Flora was his last, the last thing which tied him to his past, and uh, he didn't visit us at all fun or anything. You're right. That would kind of cheapen that scene, those scenes with Flora, if there was somebody else. I agree. I didn't, I didn't mean romantically necessarily. But I, I meant another companion, maybe someone he calls on from time to time, or maybe. He's just so badass, he doesn't need an oracle. But as you say, he's just been observing for so many years. He's been waiting for this character to come around. Yeah, well, that's what I think. And like I yeah. mentioned in the previous podcast, I think Gus was not necessarily the first one he tried to groom mm. to become somebody who opposes the god and just like him. I mean, well, it's just some kind of crazy theory, but I think Zod may have been uh, another guy he tried to groom for it, only he failed. Oh, well, that's what really I, cool. Yeah, yeah I never it's what thought I, about that. It's what I, well, then I'll develop. It's what I said uh, during the previous podcast that Zod might have been a proto-Guts. It's just an old theory of mine that maybe, you know, the Skullite and Zod have known each other for a long time, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean Zod has to have lived for a thousand years. Maybe once upon a time, Zod was at the center of some events, maybe the, the birth of another member of the Golden or such a thing, and... Mm-hmm. The Skull Knight watched over him and tried to prepare him for it, mm-hmm. tried to make him into an ally, and it failed, and Zod eventually sacrificed somebody and became an apostle. So even so, they still have this history in common. So the Skull Knight just left him be, and uh, maybe he tried to kill him and couldn't, who knows. And in any case, uh, he's now doing the same thing with Guts, and uh, this time it's, uh, it's a success. So, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of those pieces fit immediately if you if you consider that if you consider guts and Zod as analogs, there's a lot of things that make sense from that with yeah. that comparison. So I can I can definitely see that as a possibility. Uh, to jump into that though, you, you touched on something that I really wanted to talk about, and that is SK and Zod's relationship. How far back does it go? What do we know about Zod? Well, he's been looking for so, the strong ones for 300 years, but in volume 26. He specifically references uh, memory of SK wearing the Berserk armor. Yeah. So how, uh, and, and we know uh, also that Shiark said the, the former wearer of the armor died while wearing it. And there's a little image that's clearly former Skull Knight because he has the sword and everything. Uh, and he even, he, Skull Knight even said himself that the armor, I think, I think doesn't he say the armor killed me directly? No, no, no. no? What? No. no, no, he doesn't say so. Well, I just meant he, he, it's an, he says that's an armor that I once wore. And then adding on to that, Shiark said the former wearer of the armor died. So that's why I draw those two lines together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, she said the, former, the last owner died, and he said right. he wore it at one point. So, I mean, he. And it had a skull as the last. Uh, yeah. Helmet. And yeah. the sword the guy's wearing is always bleeding out, looks just like Skull Knights. So. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's not 100% sure, but uh, yeah. Let's we just say let's say ninety five percent sure. Yeah, it it okay. was him. So yeah. That being the case, how old was Skull Knight at that point, and then that, how old does that make Zod? The reason I say all this is I, I wonder how long the two have been companions or, or, or have not known each other. Well, it's possible that Zod, you know, knows of the armor, but not you know, the, but that he wasn't around to see it firsthand. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I thought I, I thought about that as well, but the, the specific the wording he uses is this. The memories. He said it brings back memories of this time. That's that true. Time. So that's yep. So I don't know. 
Yeah, well, I re- like I said, uh, this idea I had is uh, actually something I, I thought about very long ago, like before the armor was even introduced in the series. Yeah. So. And um, recently, I mean, over time, I think Zod has become... Mirrors make made him more deeper and deeper. Like, yeah. For example, what happened on the cliff? What happened when he was faced with the Falcon of Light? Again, it's stuff we talked about last time. But I think the more things go on, the deeper that becomes. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Eventually, I think he'll be revealed to have a pretty significant role. And yeah, I believe he's lived a long time. I mean, that exchange with the Skull Knight certainly seems to indicate it. So, yeah. Right. It's yeah, in a like, lot of ways, he's a uh, he's sort of a main representative of like the God Hand side of things. Like, just because he's the one who sort of gives out that kind of information, like it trickles out from him. So it's um, almost go ahead, Azil. No, I was going to say uh, even the other lieutenants uh, among Griffith's armies, uh, the five generals, they all they, they all act some kind of you know heralds. The Locus does it a lot also, you know, he looks very ominous and says, yeah, soon it won't matter, you know, like mm-hmm. the, true, the true master will come. Mm-hmm. They're all a bit like that, and Zod, uh, the most among all of them. Right. But what's different about Zod is they, they even know, those generals even know that he's, he's different. He's kind of a, a man apart from them. Yeah. The intro in volume 32, specifically there, they're, talk, they're talking among themselves about, wow, Zod sure is awesome. This yeah, is, as he's yeah even they look up to him. Exactly. So he's, I, I consider Zod like, yeah, he's more of a loner. You know, he's working with the other Apostle Generals and things, but obviously he's he's kind of wants to do his own thing as well to a certain extent, I think. Yeah, of course. But that's why he was on the cliff, you know? Right, sure. I mean, yeah. among, among other things, he, he has that aspect where he's not just a servant. Right. Even, even though he's acted as a servant a lot lately, there's more to him than that, and I think eventually it, it will show. I mean, I don't know in what way exactly it will show. So his boss, I guess, the closest to Griffiths among all of them. Yeah. But he's also the one who has the most, uh, yeah, freedom or whatever. Okay. So here's what I'm doing. I have a stack of volumes next to me, and I'm throwing volume nine on my futon because we're done with it. <laughs> I'm moving on to volume ten. This is what solidified my interest in Berserk. Now, obviously, I liked the series before. I wouldn't have bought the manga. But Volume 10 is where it was like, yep, I will be reading this series until it is over so that I can find out what is at the bottom of that tower. So, Volume 10, we're not going to go through all of it, but SK makes his second appearance here uh, to rescue Rickard from two apostles that we are very familiar with. And it's kind of interesting that Mirror chose these two. Why do you think... SK chose this moment. Why did he, first of all, two questions. Why did he bother to save Rickard? And two, why didn't he just take out these apostles right then and there? Well, much like he saved Luca later on, mm-hmm. I don't think he necessarily had the reason for saving Rickard. He was, maybe he was just around, and he, you know, happened to do that. As for why he didn't kill them, I guess he didn't want to interfere with the eclipse yeah. uh, too early on. Keeping a low profile, but at the same time, he saved Rickard. I, I don't know. Honestly, there could be two ways are, are about it. Either he saved him because he's just a nice guy, which is also why he saved Luca, or mm-hmm. maybe he did it specifically because he knew Rickard would play a role later on in saving Gus and Casca. Right. But uh, I don't know. We I can't be sure of that. So sure. I mean, this, it's not. It's not. We can't really determine an answer ourselves based on what we know. But my, my feeling was also similar in that. 
he didn't want to disrupt things too much by taking out two apostles, whether or not that would actually cause a chain reaction. He, yeah. He's just trying to ride the coattails of the eclipse until that moment comes where he can strike at the god hand. That, that's what I figured SK's plan was right here. As for why Rickard, I, I imagine it's similar, whereas it might have just been simply causality in that he happened to be, be there to protect him at that time. You know, And, and Rickard does play a role later on, obviously. Yeah. I don't think well, it was planned from him to save Rickard. Right, that's what I'm saying. It could have been coincidence, sure. Yeah. Yeah, because then the question becomes if it was uh, intentional, you know, why, why didn't he help everyone else? You know, he got there, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of late, late for them. Like yeah, so either so it was, yeah, so it was either very specifically, you know, because Rickard, you know, is important or because uh, it was, yeah, he just happened to get there at that moment and decided to intervene, you know, yeah, sort well, of, you know, whimsically. I, I have a I have a hard time believing that SK will be sitting in the bushes watching us. <laughs> yeah, watching them all get slaughtered. Yeah, that yeah. adds a little dark dimension to his character. <laughs> Come on. Well, they need they need to die, so I'm I'm not going to interfere. Yeah, yeah. It's still it's a pretty cool moment for him. Uh, Rickard screams at him, and he just kind of sits there looking stoic, like a badass. Hops off on the horse. You see the the horse exhibiting more strange gravity defying moments. Yeah. I had this. Uh, I don't want to talk about it, actually. I had this really shitty theory many, many, many years ago that SK's appearances were related to the full moon. And obviously, <laughs> that's not the case. But another characters are, so we're not going to get into that, though. Yeah. It, um, it's, it's, it wasn't that stupid, you know. It could have been. It could have been, yeah. But uh, the next episode is one of my favorites in the entire series. As the Falcons are descending down into the Tower of Retribution, they... I start wondering how deep did this tower go? And Charlotte starts telling them the history of the significance of this tower and that the tower was actually built on top of this massive crevice in the, in the earth that if you go down far enough, are the remnants of the original empire that uh, established Midland. And that is, go ahead. The remnants of the city, not the empire itself. I mean, okay. Well, the heart of the empire, the capital of the empire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, that main man is Geyseric, and you see two really detailed shots of him, although, of course, you don't see his face yet, but very detailed armor shots of this character. You know, I must have, I probably have looked at these panels, I don't know, probably <laughs> a thousand times, always trying to clue out something from it. And there's nothing, in my opinion, there's nothing to be gained <laughs> necessarily from looking at all the different motifs here, uh, other than he was uh, some kind of awesome general. But, um, what do you guys think of the significance of his description here? Gus keeps comparing him, comparing the time to the current time and Geyseric to Griffith at one point. And then, of yeah. course, he recognizes the skull mask, as Shawa describes, as being from the skull knight. But what do you think that's about? Because this can go so many different ways, this, this, this parallel between SK and Griffith. So the thing Floss says about causality being a spiral and not a circle. So I think... It's fitting in a way that uh, Skull Knight or, let's say, Geyseric originally had traits which were both common to Gus and Griffith. Mm, yeah. So, in a way, yeah, he was like Griffith in that he was an emperor who, a conqueror who, you know, took everything by hand and whatever. And in another way, he was like Gus in that he ended up uh, opposing the gold hand and uh, what we know, well, we don't really know much about it. Yeah. But I guess that's why I say it. Like, he was like Griffiths, but also like Gus in a way. And I'm guessing whoever became a member of the Gold Hand back then was a bit like Gus and Griffiths as well. But uh, yeah, it went the other way. Mm. 
Yeah, the, the guts and the fact that guts and Griffith both have parallels to one character has always been very fascinating to me, and you, I never necessarily know how to speculate beyond that. Is that they both share similarities, and there might even be nothing more than that, you know? Griff. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I've always seen like I've always sort of imagined Gazerick as being like, like I don't know, I even did like, you know, a silly image of like what like his face. And it was based on sort of elements of Guts and Griffith. I've always thought of him, you know, as, you know, being that way. Mm-hmm. Sort of a combination of the two. Just in the way... And it's, it's only gotten stronger, obviously, on uh, Guts' end. Yeah. You know, the, the similarities, you know, is assuming uh, he's Skull Knight. Yeah. Yeah. And his origins. So it's interesting that he has that connection to both, you know, those characters. Right. Another, another thing I, I've thought of uh, quite a while back is that... Griffith could have been. Uh, we know he's been engineered in a way by the idea of evil mm-hmm. and so forth. And, and uh, I guess he could have been. Uh, he could have been based on Geyseric. Like they know what happened back in the day, a thousand years ago. They mm-hmm. saw how it went down. Of course, we don't know anything about it. But maybe they said, "Okay, let's make our champion following that model. Like, right. like let's base it on that model and let's make him ours." Right. Right, that's a good point, yeah. Following, you know, sort of the idea you had about Zod being uh, sort of a failed, like, guts in his time, maybe Gazerick was also engineered to be that, and, you know, they, you know, I mean, we obviously, we see, like, the people with the sacrifices at the bottom of the tower carved, you know, it looks like, you know, more, looks more primitive in a way, because it's all in their forehead, and uh, so that's still a mystery, but maybe he was also supposed to be, like, you know, the, he was supposed to be like Griffith, and it, you know, for whatever reason, that didn't work out too. Yeah, actually, well, that's one of my earliest speculations about Geyseric is that he was so so much of a badass, he refused to sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, I, he was there. They were all there. He said, "Oh fuck you guys, I'm not doing this." I, um, I also agree. That's that's also. <laughs> I was going to lead into that, but that's definitely what I think happened as well. It, it, something happened with his empire. He was given a choice. He made, he made, in the God Hand's opinion, the wrong choice. And his, <laughs> his empire crumbled as a result of it. But, but while that happened, there's so many loose ends here to, to, to make... The, the equation doesn't make sense. There's also, yeah. right now. there's also another thing that ties uh, Geyseric and Griffiths together, is that the fact uh, Falconia is, seems right. to bear similarities to Geyseric's old capital. I mean, the capital of his Yeah, empire. they... I think they say it explicitly that uh, or, the yeah. pontiff says it's the lost city or the old city. I think is something like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's one of the things that ties the two of them together. One thing I wanted to focus on guts and him real quick. I had jumping forward to volume twenty four for a moment. If guts and SK have a connection, just focus on the armor for a moment. SK had to wear that armor for some reason to continue his fight against the God Hand, and ultimately. The former wearer of the armor, I can't believe I'm having to use a proxy to describe him, died while wearing it. So when Flora is discussing these things with guts in volume 24, do you think a part of her is is remembering when SK was a human in the same kind of predicament? Do you think as she's talking to him, she's maybe thinking of guts like SK with the knowledge of the, the decisions that SK ultimately made? Well, uh, SK certainly was, you know, when they were like, you know, when she was, you know, putting the, uh, 
finishing touches. Uh, yeah. Yeah, on the armor when she was getting it ready for him, you know, he was the one who was, you know, voicing, you know, the most concerns about that. You know, it's sure. <laughs> as we know now, very personal. <laughs> like, sure. you know, hey, what are you doing with that? And uh yeah, she yeah, and she even said I think in that part that it brought back, you know, memories for her. Like and she yeah. seemed like they were kind yeah. of fond of memories. Sure. Maybe he saw it differently. I just, but, I, uh, I, I think, I wonder if the way she interacts with guts, if to her, it's she's it, as if she's like interacting with a former version of her old friend. You know, that's but, all I meant. Well, yeah, but you know, it's Shuroke who mentions the fact uh, the former owner died within the armor. Yeah, and she, she also says Flora often looked at it uh, longingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Longingly. yeah. Uh, I, I guess you know, there's a history. I don't know if she's really. Maybe Sierra was wrong, man. Maybe maybe that's what that's what Flora told her. No, well, I, well, of course it's what Flora told her anyway. I mean, yeah, everything yeah. she knows is what Flora told her. But I don't think uh, Mira's tricking us with that. I think that's uh, it's based in truth. Okay. But another thing is that links cuts and the Skullnight together very obviously is Flora and Shiruke. Like the Skullnight told him. Flo- Shiruke is to guts what Flora was to the Skullnight long ago. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's another common point they have. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of connections there. Actually, in my opinion, more to Guts than SK than there are for Griffith than SK at this point, is the way Guts has been developing. Yeah, uh, of course. And, yeah, as we get to the bottom of the tower, we see the uh, statues. Everything's all, not perfectly preserved, but pretty, pretty much perfectly preserved. One thing I wanted to note about this, the imagery here, is that what do you think happened to these people? Did everyone get branded? Because here's the thing. Actually, this is sad, guys. Going through this, I didn't notice this one detail until just this week. And as I've said, <laughs> I've, looked this, I've looked at this volume thousands of times, and I never necessarily noticed. I always assumed the corpses at the bottom all died during the ceremony that got them branded. But look, some are being crushed. Some are being crushed yeah. by, by objects yeah. in the background. I yeah, was assumed that they died similar to how the hawks or the falcons died in the eclipse. They were all devoured or branded and killed or whatever. But obviously, there's some catastrophic destruction death happening here. On top of that, <laughs> well, it's what it's what you know. Charlotte talks about the city was destroyed overnight. Such a thing. Sure. Yeah, it reflects those events. Sure. So we can't know. Honestly, we can't know what happened. I, I myself never really tried to figure out what happened to all of them because. We just can't know, and uh, until we are told, we we can't know for sure. So there are many, many, many possibilities. Yeah, yeah, it's it's inconclusive because I mean, for all we know, they did, they were all sacrificed. Maybe they weren't all branded, but in, in the shot, I know the the shot you're talking about. Maybe you know, Mira just didn't want to reveal it, you know, until that detail shot showing the brands on all of them. Like maybe those ones that are being crushed, maybe they weren't crushed at first, but they were sacrificed, and then you know, when the city came crashing down, mm-hmm. that's just how it ended up. Yeah. So, you know, it could be that, you know, some people just got killed, you know, after the fact or in the destruction and not everyone was sacrificed or they could have all been sacrificed. Like, uh, as said, we just we we don't know yet. and Maybe we'll never know. Sure. Yeah. And in any case, I mean, they're, they're sacrificed because they're branded. So it, they don't have to be eaten by apostles afterwards. Maybe, you know, maybe they were all branded and then the city collapsed and they all died like that. And that was it. You, you yeah. Walk yeah. Like that. Honestly, it's not like there are hard rules which uh, must be followed. So I think if we spend too long thinking about it, we'll just you know turn around in circles like many members have done on the forum before. Oh, I'm not so, trying to come to a conclusion here. I'm just talking about uh, sure. this happens. Or... I know, but what I mean is that basically 
it could be anything. Could yeah, be anything. sure. I agree. Uh, like I said, it's not it's not an equation that can be solved right now with the, with the variables that are still out there. So, yeah. um, if you, one before we move on though, I, I did want to note something about the the uh, architecture in the background of one of these panels. The long shot we have it's a full page shot of the statue in the foreground and the dead bodies in the background with the smashed uh, yeah. pillars and buildings. There's some imagery in the background that I thought was really interesting. It's these little things give us insight into how the world was at that time. And True. they're they're humans with wings, and I always wondered what that necessarily meant. Are these trying? To, are these the depictions of gods, or are these the depictions of, you know, what does that imagery necessarily mean? I also thought maybe it had to do with uh, maybe apostles were walking around them. Maybe they were supernatural humans at the time. Yeah, I think it's more like it depicts the war that was back then, which could be. By of course, it could just be. I mean, imagery which is not related to anything, but it could mean. It could depict the war that was back then, which is like it is now, basically, with right. you know, uni- unicorns and hydras and exactly. maybe maybe winged humans. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the imagery that's on the front of those temples has actually reminded me of the imagery on the front of Falconia. You have humans, and you also have beasts on the same on the same level, basically. So yeah, and I think it's deliberate. I mean, like right. I said, Falconia is based on this vast old city, sure. and uh, I think it's very deliberately the same. That's why it's the same kind of uh, Greco-Roman architecture, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Moving forward, um, we have Skull Knight and Zod right in front of the eclipse. SK has a really unique line here, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, as he will call me out if I am. SK refers to his sword here and says that, and I think the Dark Horse wording says, I wager myself upon my sword. But I remember the original translation being a little bit different, and it, 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 he, the way he referred to it, not necessarily as like a manly, chivalrous thing to say, but almost as, the, as if the sword had some kind of feeling in it. Like it was he, compelling him? Exactly. And you, you see that again in volume 20. Yeah. Whenever he slices it or slashes at the Behirid Apostle, and then it says, uh, he says, my sword wavered for a moment, you know? Yeah. And so, and so it made me think about his sword. His sword's pretty special. If you want to fast forward a little bit, I'm going too fast, let me know. But when he activates the, um, well, the Behirid sword for short term, the sword changes and the thorns grow. Uh, the, the Behirid things obviously cover the blade, but that the, the sword kind of enhances itself. It's like it becomes more wild looking. And I wonder if that's just the natural properties of Behirids on a blade, or if there's something special, special property about his sword that allows that to happen. Well, personally, I think it's the Behirids. You know, they're twisting reality, so they're twisting the sword. Mm. And that's why it looks like that. But that doesn't mean his sword isn't special. That being yeah. said, I think. If if it weren't for the second occurrence where he says uh, he's betting his sword or the sword wavered, such a thing, I, I would say it's just a way of speaking for him. Like yeah. you know, I entrust myself to this sword. Right. He's basically he's just it's it's an elaborate way of saying uh, he he'll count on his fighting ability to get by. But yeah, I don't know. It could still be that. It could still be uh, a way of saying it, uh, some kind of uh, you know, elaborately. Sure. sure. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, yeah. I Go think ahead. it's kind of yeah. I think it could be both ways. I think you know, like the Behirits, maybe they, in a sense, make the sword more. They make things more real. I mean, it transforms it like it would transform a person into sort of more of that idea of how they have themselves. Kind of like how mm. it turns someone into an apostle. But also, the sword is special by virtue of you know the same reason the Dragon Slayer is now special because it's you know 
had so much interaction with you know spiritual beings that it's sort of attuned that way and so maybe it's also in, enhanced in that sense it's you know it's obviously not just a normal sword however you uh sure. want to slice it I and think, uh i was just gonna yeah. say I, th- I think we need to be careful about how we describe the properties of the behir because the behir itself isn't what necessarily transforms it's the, the power of the God hand, and, and we presume, if you want to read it, episode 83, it's the, the power of the idea of evil and the vortex that ultimately That's true. gives the properties yeah. of transformation. Yeah. So. Well, we, we know, even for apostles, we, we know the Beherits don't actually transform them. However, right, the yeah. Beherits are what allows the user to travel to that location. So yeah. they are still supernatural elements, and they are linked to the, to the abyss. So... I think they still have they still have innately some power. So yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And what I find uh, uh, just going back uh, yeah. to volume, let's uh, see, thirteen. What I found most interesting about that is sort of his first reference to to void on that same panel. Right. Yeah. Where yeah. Where he said because yeah, it's it's not so much what he says; it's just the fact that he references him, you know, on such a personal level at all. Yeah. Like you know, he basically says void would say, you know, like oh well, you know, like you go and you have <laughs> you chat with him. Well, <laughs> like, I mean, to me that to, to me the first thing I thought of was that that's clear evidence that as if we as if it was in doubt, but the Skull Knight has been to one of these ceremonies before. You know, he's been to the birth yeah. of the God Hand before. And, and, barring that, he may have even had human to human interaction with the void, but who knows? Well, maybe not human to human, but even still, I mean, he obviously, it's not just like, it's more than he was there because, I mean, he refers to him by name. Oh, yeah, and, you're right. Yeah. And, Sorry. And yeah. that reflects, you know, just, you know, like, he knows his, like, traits, his characteristics. He's that familiar with him. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, like, I know how he talks, you know. Right. So it's like, yeah, it's just the, it's a real intimate kind of line. And it's like, and yeah, he doesn't have a lot more like that, but I mean, that's enough. Just yeah. that line there. Well, it, if you want to jump ahead, as this connects, the next th- the next time we see SK in this volume is when he's striking a Boyd's big ass brain. Yeah. So yeah, there's clearly something going on between those two. It's not conclusive what the relationship <laughs> was. Maybe he was just striking the head of the God Hand, who just happened to be the first person he slashed at. I tend it, to believe that. Well. He is striking at Void particularly because of whatever happened in the past a thousand years ago. You know, even though I agree with what Griffith said in that, uh, yeah, the Skull Knight, the way he says things, it it shows that he knows Void personally. He also has interaction like that with Slan, for example, in Volume 26. You're right. What, yeah. what he calls her, it's very, I mean, it's very <laughs> personal in a way. He, he calls her a whore. Yeah. You know, again, it's it's elaborate and it's a, it's a pun as well. But right. he's basically calling a whore to her face, and she makes fun of him like, "Oh, your Majesty!" Oh, yeah. So <laughs> there's this very intimate relationship, the two of them, and yeah. uh, I, I think the same with Void. So I don't think it can be really conclusive, even though I also feel like that, you know, mm-hmm. regarding their relationship. But yeah, what's shown for sure is that the Skullite knows them, and he knows yeah. them well, well sure. enough to. to to know their mannerisms and personalities, basically. Yeah. 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 Sure. So then SK is able to save Guts and Skull Knight, or Guts, Guts and Casca, uh, using his crazy horse that goes upside down and flies through apostles. And, and he this. also sl- slashes them. I mean, he slices yeah. apples, dices them like he's, uh, you know, just yeah. food. Yeah. Bounces off the massive apostles and jumps. He's- yeah. He somehow avoids like a little mini like black hole like crushing you know action right. that Femto uh, 
Yeah. And he he's actually on. he's actually surprised that Femto has this ability, or at least he didn't expect it, because there's a little panel of him being surprised that it's happening. Yeah. There's a reading into it too much to say that he didn't know that he had the ability, but that's just what I think. Uh, um, I, I think he knew, but he might have not expected Femto to attack directly, you know? Right, right. Because Femto just very coolly mm-hmm. just, you know, does it. He's been born, like, you know... Five minutes ago, and he just he's he's on to it already. So yeah, even well, even he's not like totally sure why. I mean, he looks at his hand after like he was just sort of discovering it himself at that moment, like you yeah. know, like instinct or something. It just happened. Yeah, I, I was actually going to say while we're here, let's talk about that moment where he, you know, he crushes the 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 mass and then he pauses. There's three actually three panels where he stops, looks at his hand, and then SK as he's jumping away, Femto puts his hand out hesitates, or appears to hesitate anyway, SK gets away and Femto looks at his hand. What was that hesitation about? Or was it merely that he's well, still new to his powers? Well, in between, they do have a big panel of guts when he's hesitating, like he looks right at him. Yep. Wow. It does you know, definitely imply that. That either either stops, you know, because, I don't know, you can, you can read into it how you want to. Either, you know, it's some part of him remembering Guts, or Guts is important for the future. It depends on how you want to read it. Yeah. I tend to go towards the latter part of the explanation, that Guts still has a role to play. And I have no way of elaborating on that either, because, I mean, it happens in a flash. So yeah. maybe he yeah. just had a, had, a, had a feeling. We'll never know, obviously. I mean, it, it obviously works both ways. I mean, naturally, when you're reading it and you see him, you know, aiming to, you know, use that crushing attack again, and then he, you know, literally stays his hand and doesn't do it after, you know, we see Guts and presumably he's looking at Guts. Yeah. You know, the reader is automatically going to connect that with Griffith and his relationship with Guts. And maybe, you know, you know, Mura is sending that message to the audience, but it's not necessarily why he didn't do it also. Right. Yeah. You know, I have also made some kind of an argument in the past that he could have been, like, he's looking at Guts and he's maybe not even hesitating, but savoring the moment. Like, he's just looking at him. And that means something to him, remembering everything it means. And in that split second, it's enough for the Skull Knight to leave. Like, basically, yeah, yeah. he didn't leave, let him go necessarily, but he looked and thought about what it means to him. And that he missed his chance, essentially. Right. So, yeah. because we do see what we see in, uh, in the early volumes of Femto and Gus interacting. Femto doesn't seem to really feel anything for Guts anymore, so... Sure. And next, I'd written down on my list, and, and uh, the aftermath of the eclipse, uh, he kind oh. of... Just, go ahead, Azil. No, so, so, yeah, when he exits the eclipse, and uh, he meets up with Rickert. Yeah, yeah. And then immediately after that, Zod, of course. And they oh, have of all course, yeah. Interaction. So, yeah, go ahead and talk about that old stuff. Well... There's uh, one other occurrence in which uh, Zod is shown to have more. He and the Skull Knight agree to postpone their fight. So right. it shows that Zod is not just a monster who is out to fight. He can actually postpone something. Yeah, it can be reasoned with. Well, yeah, when it's worth it. So, yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah. I think it also had to do with the fact that it was Guts, though. If it was just yeah, a random... Course, yeah. You know, he's kind of holding it off for Guts' sake. Yeah, he's got he's got something for Gus. I think it's clear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he has a like an affection for him. He sees I think he sees something, you know, of himself in him, you know, the same that we see. 
And also, I think it shows sort of what we were talking about earlier with Zod's uh, sort of his 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 own autonomy and independence. Like earlier, I think when at the beginning of their confrontation, Skull Knight, you know, makes that comment about him guarding the gate, and he, you know, yeah. you know, sort of uh, dismisses that notion, you know, and says, you know, that's not why I'm here, you know, and everything. Right. And it makes yeah. it interesting later because he, you know, he asserts his independence. Like you know, he's not like them. You know, he doesn't care about this feast. You know, he's not like the other apostles. But it it makes his loyalty to Griffith in particular so interesting later because mm-hmm, yeah. of yeah that attitude now to the fact that yeah he lets he lets guts go and he lets them leave and it's theoretically not in you know the God Hand's best interest to be letting them escape like that. And, to go well, to go back real, real quick, just this is just something to expound on what Griffith just said about guts and Zod. I mean, in volume thirty two, Sonia actually says it directly. She is talking about the choice that he'll have to make. Uh, and he's talking about, she says, the one you're drawn to. I mean, she specifically refers to talking about guts. So we yeah. kind of get a moment in, in Zod's own head. It's pretty clear that that's the case, but she kind of solidifies it for us by saying that, those words. Yeah. Another interesting thing about that scene is that it's a very similar prophecy to the one that uh, Skull Knight gives to Guts. And I think it's uh, volume 18 and like Road of Evil 2. Mm-hmm. About whether, you know, he has to make the same, a similar choice of whether he's going to you know, save Casca or try to, you know, kill. Well, this actually, this is part of a larger conversation we're going to get to, but I think that's one of those junction points or uh, moment. What's it called? Junction junction of times. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's all about the junction of time. I think that's one of those moments where you can go one of two ways and that's going to be a a critical moment for the ultimate aftermath of those events. Part of causality. So, all those ceremonies are junction of times anyway. I mean, yeah. the eclipse, the incarnation ceremony, they are all, uh, yeah, they are all constant. When did that term first pop up? Was it volume 34? Or yeah. was it before that? I can't remember. No, I think it's volume 34 the first time. I thought it's in 13, but that could well, just be the translation. No, I think you're right. I think it is in 13. It's, at, uh, it's but, directly after the eclipse. Yeah, I was about Slant to say. says it. I was about to say, is it the, the exact same term? I can't remember. I know it's um, I'd have to pull my similar one, but I'm not sure. I'd have to check. Yeah, I could. I yeah, Slan does say something similar anyway. Yeah, yeah. In any case, it's similar. You know, I feel bad because I'm the one I think that you know specifically coins the term. So, <laughs> actually, I'm looking at it now. It's Ubik that says it first, or Ubik. Excuse me. Yeah. yeah. It's- Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, Ubik. The dark, the, the dark horse translation is an un- unpredictable thing happens at the temporal junction point. So well, that, that's I'll, their translation of it. I'll check the kanji. Just give me a second. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, I know what it is actually. Okay. Uh, and so Azil's looked it up and determined that they are the same character, right? Or the same word used? Yep, yeah, yeah. Okay, so as as expected, you know, it's the, it's a similar term that's used to describe well uh, events where events can go one of two ways, in my opinion, is what that really is referring to. But it's very strange. yeah. Go ahead. You, yeah, I would say events uh, during which uh, hold of causality on events is weakened, loosened, mm. so that things which were not expected can happen. Yeah. And, and uh, basically, that could boil down to, I mean, this is always, you know, seemingly always in the case of these ceremonies going on. And I guess, like, the biggest thing that could happen is that it doesn't actually work. That, you know, someone actually prevents the ceremony from being completed properly. Yep. 
Yep. Which, I mean, the closest we've seen to that is uh, the count. Right. Of and uh, that wasn't very, you know, significant. You know, it just meant like one less uh, apostle. Well, uh, you know, it's uh, Femto, Femto says a skull knight always attacks the, uh, them, the Godin, at the uh, junction of times. Right. And uh, I think it shows that these are very determinant events. And probably the Skull Knight doesn't even try to attack them at other times because he knows or he feels that it's, it can't work. Right. But I'm not sure the count is the only time he didn't work. Again, it's something I mentioned previously, but uh, I think during the incarnation ceremony, uh, when Gus and company saved Casca, it, it might have been something which was not planned. Of course, we don't know it for sure. Nothing's sure at all, but... Well, they say it's not planned. In, in the dream... Yeah. In the dream, uh, the, the Falcon dream Guts had, she's shown dying. Right. Like she's shown dying, and then the Falcon lits up, and basically it, it refers to the birth of Griffiths. So I think she was, she, she might have been meant to die at this point because their son had been used for the purpose for which he, he was intended. Mm-hmm. So Casca had no use anymore, so she was supposed to die, and probably Guts was supposed to die later on. Or at least become mad and uh, not be uh, trouble for the golden anymore. So right. yeah, I, I think this might have been a case where things didn't go as planned. Well, sure. what I mean is, uh, like, sort of, if Guts had instead of saving her had chosen to, you know, kill, uh, you know, the the Behirid Apostle or Griffith or Femto or what, whatever stasis, you know, basically, I, uh, you know, stop the ceremony. Like, we haven't seen, you know, really that, like, maybe that will be something significant sometime, something we haven't seen, where not only something has changed, but, like, the ceremony itself is a total bust. You know, it isn't completed. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Sure. Like, well, that could I be a, I think we've seen this happen multiple, multiple times. We just haven't had a word for it until very recently. <laughs> so we're kind of have to re- having to retroactively go back and see what may have been termed a temporal junction point. Yeah. Well... I don't know if uh, we've seen it many times. Really? I think we've seen it like, we just described like three or four different events. Yeah, well, it's it's happened during ceremonies, but it's not like, I mean, I wouldn't say it's happened every every volume or anything, you know. Not it also volume, might not, no. like maybe even the count doesn't really, yeah. uh, doesn't I mean, count. Like yeah. maybe we've only seen three really, the eclipse, the uh, the incarnation, and then the, the latest ceremony with, uh, you know, Fantasia and yeah, Falconia. The- yeah, that's what I would say. I would say the, the occultation ceremony, the incarnation ceremony, and when uh, the worlds merge, I would say these are the three junction of times that we saw happening. I, I don't think the the ceremony of the count really counts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because, yeah, those apostle ceremonies could be, you know, there's obviously a lot of them. It could be like a dime a dozen. And yeah. when we ever we sh- whenever we see sort of allusions to that, I think most recently with Ganeshka, it just sort of happens. It doesn't, like, have any special significance with it. And, I don't, yeah, and, you know, Skull Knight doesn't show up at those times, obviously, every time. Yeah, you know, so, for the count... Even so, I mean, he didn't sacrifice, but it's not because Guts, you know, busted it out or anything. He just loved Teresa too much, so yeah, he made the choice. So it's not even like some somebody interfered or anything. He just didn't didn't you know he wasn't ready to sacrifice, and that was it. Yeah, right. To get back on track, we have Volume Thirteen still. Skull Knight basically teaches Guts about what it means to live in the Hazama. <laughs> <laughs> The most hated yeah. term, the intersplice, the interstice. 
the, basically the border of worlds. That's why. That's how I always like to just refer it to. I don't like to. Well, I like the interstice. It's a pretty good word for it, I think. It's okay. Sure, I just think it's a little too complicated for what it's trying to describe. The border of worlds. I mean, nothing's too complicated the, for it. The interstice. <laughs> No one uses the word interstitial unless you're like a scientist or trying to talk too high-minded about what something is. Well, we're berserk scientists, so... Yeah. Trying to sell... <laughs> Google ads use the word interstitial, actually. Quite mm. a lot. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I like the interstice. All right. I'm outnumbered. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, anyway, the border between worlds. It's a very interesting concept. And it's yeah. uh, one of the first times... Uh, I mean, our worldview is extended beyond what it was previously so yeah, yeah. absolutely and, it's, and obviously it's kind of an interlude into how the world is now the way it's, it's being a, described yeah and it's something the skylight actually often contributes to you know ex- expanding the worldview sure giving, giving out information rather cryptically but that turns out being very important and significant down the line yeah so yeah, yeah. I, it's one of his big roles, and uh, I think uh, in this uh, occurrence it's uh, quite significant what he does guts, and of course it becomes more and more after that when uh, the child is born. So right, right. He basically frames the context of you know the the world and the events and how we should look at it going in. Yeah, and he, I think in a way he explains to Gus what it's going to be like to live as a branded man. But he yeah, still, as, as much as he explains, he still omits so much. <laughs> yeah. There are so many times when, uh, I think Gus even directly asks him, who, you, who are you in volume 14? And he just says, no, basically, I don't, I'm not going to tell you. It's enough to say that I oppose the God Hand or I oppose the evil ones. And that's really all he gives him. Yeah. Well, so. it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty badass line, you know? Well, yeah. <laughs> much sure. like... During when uh, he comes out of the you know tornado for the eclipse, mm-hmm. when Zod shows up behind him and the skylight basically just doesn't give a shit and <laughs> uh, keep going. Don't mind us. Keep going. Oh yeah, yeah. don't mind him. And Rickard is you know freaking yeah. out. He's like, ah, oh, don't worry. I'll take care of the. I'll take care of this one. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, this Actually, point. it's yeah. not even like he's gonna take care of it. He's just looking over his shoulder, sort of like, nah, this is no big deal. <laughs> he gives basically he gives Zod his back for like three or yeah. four panels. Like, you know? Yeah, pay pay this guy no attention. <laughs> awesome. And yeah, w- one thing about SK, you know, I, I wanted to talk about his um, what where you think you might fall on the, on, the, on, the, on politics, Republican or Democrat, or what what constitutes human life because. He tells Guts to stomp it out. <laughs> yeah, he is. Uh, he is definitely for abortion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's not pro-life. Right. He's pro-choice. Yeah. yeah. Well, He's pro-death. <laughs> I mean, I mean, how could a man? I mean, how could someone like the Skull Knight not be pro-choice when he opposes the champions <laughs> of causality? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. He's for uh, human freedom. I guess all I mean is he sees a fetus and he says, "You should kill it. You should stomp it out." Yeah, he just says, you know, you really, yeah, he does say it. It's like, you know, you really, it would really be for the best. Yeah. <laughs> just... But, you know, actually, it's interesting. I, I think it's very interesting because the Skullite is so out of pure. I mean, he's just pragmatic. Sure. Like, you should yeah. kill it because it will come to, it will come back to haunt you. Yeah. But, but had, had Guts done this, you know, think of all it would have changed. Oh, yeah, obviously. I, yeah. I mean, Femto was incarnated using the body of the child, but at the same time, I mean, we don't know if the child had not, you know, survived, if he could have used something else, another vessel. I guess he could have. But in any case, now 
Femto is back on Earth, but the boy within him is, I think it's a weakness, which will eventually spell his doom. Sure. So, I mean, it could have, it could have been really bad advice. No, I no. Uh, one thing I wanted well, to know, even though he says basically kill it, by the end, he sort of seems to change his mind. He says, so, it's your child. So he kind of changes his perspective on what the kid might be by the end of that whole scene, I think. Well, uh, again, I think he's just being pragmatic. Like, he tells him, if you don't kill it, it will come back to haunt you. Yeah, I know. No, well, it also calls into question, you know, like, sort of his awareness. Because, like, later he, you know, when he, I think when he gives the prophecy, he very specifically points out that the child is going to be the vessel at the ceremony. Is that true? Do you guys remember? In no, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think no? so. No. Well, because it calls into question what he knows and when he knows it and how he knows it. Because, I mean, obviously, if he knows everything, he would already know that that child is very important, you know, to the guy. Like, as pointed out, he could know that it's going to be uh, maybe, a, you know, a flaw or a weakness later. But it's also, you know, critical to the ceremony being pulled off. And if it had been killed, that could have, you know, set their plans back a thousand years, you know, or something. Right. Uh, well, I, I don't think he knows everything. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely, I don't think he knows everything. He knows a lot, but since we don't know how he is, like, has that knowledge, we can't really talk about it too long. But I, I would right. say it's clear his knowledge is partial. He's not omnipotent or anything. Yeah, it kind of supports your view that he's sort of a loner that's, you know, maybe observing things more than he has, like, you know, a special insight or an oracle or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So Flora could have maybe played that role for him to a degree. Well, I mean, yeah. in defense of my Oracle thing, even an Oracle can, first of all, be very vague. So he might just have a very vague understanding of what yeah. the future events are going to be. So maybe he missed or, one or two variables. Yeah, or, or he only knows, like S says, he only gets certain things. He doesn't get everything. Right, the full picture, yeah. 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 In any case, uh, one thing I wanted to say is that, the, in general, generally speaking, the Skull Knight is he's kind of cool, you know. I mean, he's yeah. not evil, he's not a bad guy, but he's very old and he's very cold and I think this is an occurrence when you can see it he tells Gus what he he tells Gus about the child very factually yeah but it just seems like he doesn't really care like he's telling him but he doesn't care and I think it shows also in the way he speaks in his manner of speaking that he's often very detached detached I was about to say detached he's like you know almost not you know he's doesn't have a lot of humanity, it seems like, you know, like he's not human. And I think, you know, Flora brings that up directly to him, you know, when he's, you know, how he's possibly manipulating Guts and using him, mm-hmm. you know, and is he, you know, because he could be, if he was really being, you know, completely helpful, he could obviously help Guts a whole lot more than he does. But maybe, you know, this is what Guts needs to become whatever Skull Knight wants him to become, almost like, you know, a kind of, you know, not, not love, but like tough love is the expression to have him turn into what he needs to turn into, you know, to be strong enough to reach his goal. Sure. I think, yeah. Yeah, honestly, I think to that extent, in that particular scene, I, I think the Skull Knight just doesn't want to get involved too much. I think, he, I think he may see himself as a disruption force, and he wasn't, doesn't want to disrupt things too much in, in, in many circumstances. And that, But transitioning away, in that particular line, Flores says, I hope you haven't. I, I like to think that you still retain some of your humanity. But... He, this is a guy that's been around for a thousand years, a thousand plus years. You know, what, what kind of personality would someone have after they've been around for a thousand years 
essentially trying to accomplish the same goal for a thousand years. What might that do to someone's mind? You know, I'm not saying he's insane, but he probably has a very different worldview than everybody else on the whole planet. You know? Yeah. Well, Floor also lived for a thousand years, but sure. The difference is, you know, it's it's much like the difference between guts and Casca in that the Skull Knight lives for his revenge, or at least he lives to oppose the God End. That's what yeah. he's been doing for a thousand years. Meanwhile, Floor has lived, you know, with Shiruke and p- probably sure. before that she's done other things. In any case, it's not the same kind of life. And I think his coldness and he, the way he is is also defined by that, by the fact he's been fighting against impossible odds for a very long time mm-hmm. and he's just relentless. It's another way in which he and Guts are similar is that they're both relentless. Yeah. I mean, the Skull Knight, by, you know, by any accounts, he's even more so than Guts. He's right. just, he never stops. He never stops. Even when well, he, he looks like the Terminator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Glowing eyes and the skull face. Yeah. yeah, he didn't even stop when he no longer has any flesh. He's still fighting, basically. Yeah. If he's yeah. a hollow armor. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a thing I like to, I mean, that's in a, a way, among many others, in which I like to think of him, is that, you know, when Farah ex- explains uh, how the world works, the different layers there are to the astral world, mm-hmm. she said some, some, some spirits live that, didn't know they are, they are dead. And after that, they move on to the deeper layers. Right. And I, I like to think of the Skull Knight as somebody who just refused to die. He refused to move on, you know. He kept going, kept going. Of course, there's this armor he, he wears, but I like to think of him as someone who just refused to die, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Cool. His will to live is so strong, he's able to continue on for a thousand years. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's also consistent with, you know, the idea of him being just sort of a a conqueror that, you know, can't be stopped or denied, you know, even if it's like, it's sort of changed, even if his mission has changed, you know, he's going to keep going, like you said, and never yeah. stop. Him being an armor, actually, is a perfect transition into volume 16, which is when we first see him after volume 14. Uh, he comes after Guts kills uh, Roshin. Roshin, thank you. Uh, and drops a Bahira in his mouth, and it makes a particular sound effect. It's a Kerrang, I think it is, which is a yep. hol- hollow metal sound effect. Uh, <laughs> and it, al- it also happens again in uh, the end of the Berserk game, actually. Foswalls the Bahira, and actually may- you can actually hear the sound effect in the Japanese version. Similar yep. sound. It's, it's hollow metal clanging with the yeah. Bahira dropping in. So. so that gives us a little bit of an impression of what's how he works, you know, if, if, if he really is an inhabited suit of armor, you know, it's not some guy with really messed up skin underneath the, the mask or anything like that. Well, one thing is, first, it's a helmet, the skull. Yeah. I mean, many people don't realize it, but it's a helmet. We can see it's a helmet, so just yeah. to, to be clear, because for a very long time and still nowadays, many people don't realize, they think it's a, an actual human skull, so, but it's not the right. case. And, yeah. Uh, I don't know how you can miss that though, because there's hinges on it. Yeah, there you can see the hinges on the sides. Yeah, Yeah. you know, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Are we really going to talk about everything people miss? I know. I'm I'm just surprised someone could get that wrong about that. Yeah, well, in any case, yeah, that's the first uh, time we really get the proof that he's uh, hollow, even though it seems kind of clear from the beginning. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, not much more to say about Volume 16's appearance, just other than that, just that it gives us an impression of how he works, the inner world. Yeah, it, uh, I think it reinforces the fact he's a watcher, somebody yeah. who observes. He observes. And well, he, he, 
he could have yeah. killed Roshin by himself, you know. I mean, he could have even killed her when he saved Griffiths, but no, he just observes. He he lets things play out. Well, I was going to say also, he sort of he notes, you know, God's progress, and he also, you know, notes like you know the path he's going down, and you know, like how he's going to be able to handle it. Yeah. I think it also shows, it furthermore reinforces the fact he's grooming Guts to become like him, an ally. Yeah. I wanted to launch into a discussion that brings up a couple volumes. I don't think this was something, a situation where he's been hiding in the bushes all along. I think he may have sensed that this, this kind of conflict was happening. He may have even sensed that the Bahira was, was lost, and he came to it. And the reason I say that specifically is because in the Berserk Dreamcast game at the end of it, this is just a small thing, and I could be completely off base, but there's a sound effect attached to the Behirit that's kind of this like long whining sound, and then Skull Knight approaches the Behirit, grabs it, throws it in his mouth, and then the sound stops. It's a silence after that. Well, so I, mm. go don't ahead. the Behirits, uh, doesn't Guts Behirit react to the sword? So don't they resonate with each other? So in that way, it's also sort of his way where he could track them. Like right. you were saying, like he could sense you know, that it's lost or, or what. Barrett's do react to each other in a way. Yeah, I mean, in you literally feel like a rumbling in his belly <laughs> when he's near him and hear it. <laughs> right. I, I, in any case, I think he's a. He must have a way to feel things supernaturally. I mean, it's shown many times. I'm not even going to say he might have been branded or anything, but I think as as a supernatural being, he must have a way of sensing things. But I think in the case of Rochin's fight and such a thing, he might have actually, I, I'm not going to say hiding is a bushes, but he may have been around and not necessarily willing to intervene by himself because I think he thinks himself that he's only interested in the gold hand, basically. You know, mm. He doesn't care about killing apostles. So, yeah, he went to get the Beherit, but he was not going to just necessarily kill every apostle to get them. So, yeah. Yeah. I think he's more focused on the gold hand. Okay. And maybe he only wants, uh, you know, behirits that don't belong to someone anymore. Like at that point. Like well, where he wouldn't go kill them and take them. I, I, yeah, well, that's also a fact. Maybe he was also trying to do it in a way that was not... That would Under not the radar. At, yeah, 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 definitely. But that being said, well, during the incarnation uh, ceremony... He did try to kill the Beherit Apostle, and he got his Beherit, you know, so I don't know. I think it depends on whether the situation calls for it or not. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's any sort of, like, yeah, hard, fast rules there. Sure, sure. I guess that's where we'll wrap up this section of it. We will be back in the future to discuss more Skull Knight stuff. Thanks for joining me, guys.